0: Well, it is a great joy to be with you this morning. I bring greetings from Countryside and uh, from the other elders. It's always a joy to be with you, always a joy to see familiar faces, and a great joy to see a bunch of faces of folks that I don't know, and uh, so thankful uh, for what the Lord is continuing to do here at Northlake, and so excited for you guys to get back to Northlake and uh, to Lance Thompson, Lord willing, uh, later this summer, grateful for that as well, Uh, Just grateful that Dusty and Rebecca can have some time away on sabbatical. You know, the elders uh, graciously give uh, our pastors a sabbatical once every five years. Obviously, Dusty hasn't been the pastor of Northlake for five years, but he's actually late getting his sabbatical because of things going on uh, with the church plant. And so it is uh, well-deserved for him to get a little breather. I know you'll be praying for them and uh, that they'll be refreshed through that time. We'll invite you this morning to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. You know I think one of the the challenges of living at this day and age in American and world history is that we feel like there should be a solution to every problem or difficulty. You know we enjoy a variety of technology today that makes life easy and better and we can uh, all too easily assume that there should be solutions to everything. And so we tend to prioritize or think that Comfort and ease should be a part of what we expect. You know, every pain should have a remedy, every illness a treatment, every inconvenience should be able to be automated or modernized. You know, if you think of of your home like like in mine, you know, we have a, a little Amazon device that we can talk to and tell it to do things. You know, we I can ask it to turn off the TV because I'm I'm too lazy to find the remote which would turn off the TV, or heaven forbid have to get up and actually push a button on the TV. You know, we grow impatient when a website doesn't load instantly um, or when our GPS doesn't know about a road that was just finished a couple weeks ago or those things. And, and so one of the reasons why I think years like this past one have been a challenge for our culture is simply because we don't like and have been trained to think that we should be able to avoid things that are difficult. And that simply is not the biblical reality Job chapter 5, verse 7 says, Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. See, life is full of seasons of difficulty because we live in a fallen world. And, and thankfully, those are not the only seasons of life. They're also seasons filled with great prosperity and blessing. And both come from the hand of God. And both come with their own unique sets of trials and, and challenges and temptations. And so I'd like us to look at Deuteronomy 8 this morning which is a text that looks back on a season of difficulty for Israel and looks forward to a season of prosperity. And in doing so, it teaches us some valuable lessons. Now, Deuteronomy, you may be familiar, is a a book in which Moses is speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he is speaking to the generation of, of the people of Israel who are about to enter into the promised land. If you remember your Old Testament history, God had promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation and that he would give them a land of promise. Ultimately, his descendants ended up in slavery in Egypt where that great nation grew. And God brought them out of slavery through the Exodus and led them to the promised land. But that generation who came out in the Exodus failed to trust God. Numbers 14 records how they did not go into the promised land because they were fearful. They doubted the Lord. And so God said to them that, okay, you who are age 20 and up, who did not trust me, you will die in the wilderness. Over the next 40 years, you will all pass away. And those who were 20 and under will grow, more will be born, and that generation will enter the land He says, but as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. And so for 40 years, they were in the wilderness. Deuteronomy takes place after they have uh, spent that time as they have come up to the borders of that promised land, and Moses is preparing that new generation to go in. On the plains of Moab, Moses begins to expound the law, it says in Deuteronomy 1.5. Deuteronomy literally means the the second law, it's the second giving of the law. That first generation had passed away and so Moses is reiterating all the truth that God would have for this new generation as they would enter into the land. It's a renewal of the covenant God had made with them and it's really a series of messages. A series of messages over about a one-month period where Moses is preparing them to enter, and the first part of the book is that of looking back. He's reminding them of where, what God had done and where God had brought them, and so here in chapter 8, we're going to see lessons from the wilderness, helping them and us reflect on their time in the wilderness and, and on the contrast of life there as opposed to the promised land and In so doing, we will see some powerful lessons for every season of life. This chapter divides into three primary sections, the first being in verses 1 to 6, in which we find lessons from seasons of difficulty. Let's read those verses together. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 1. He says, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, and to fear him. Now, in this chapter, these seasons of difficulty were mostly in the rearview mirror for the people of Israel. He gave them some lessons looking back to say, remember what God was doing through that time. But these are also equally pertinent and perhaps even more helpful for us to keep in mind in the midst of hard times. God is giving us a glimpse into what He is doing. Through seasons of difficulty. And one of the truths that he reminds them of first is this that God is preparing us through seasons of difficulty. Back in verse one, he reminds them that. God is working to prepare them to go into the promised land. You see, that's really one of the primary points of the book of Deuteronomy as a whole and of this specific chapter that God is and has been preparing his people for what is in store in the future. He's reminding them of what is coming. God is intending to bring you into this land, and he is giving them instruction to prepare them for that. That it's vital that they continue to obey, that they follow and submit to the Lord. And what was coming for them, as he says in this first first verse, is to go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. He says, I'm preparing you for what has been long awaited, that of entering into the promised land now when the people were in the midst of the wilderness as is the case for us when we're in the midst of difficult trials one of the temptations is simply to focus on and be consumed with all that is happening right now for us to focus all our energy and attention on our present circumstances and often to focus on how can we change them But God reminds us that part of what we are to do in those situations is to look forward, trusting that God is accomplishing his purposes now with a future goal in mind. Now, you and I don't look forward to the future that Israel looked forward to, that of the promised land that was unique for them. But we do see many things in Scripture that remind us of what God is preparing us for as we face different trials and seasons of difficulty. One of the things that may be is, is future ministry to others. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It says God is comforting us in trials so that in the future we'll be able to be a blessing to others and comfort them in any trial that they face. You see, you may be going through a season of difficulty because God is preparing you for future ministry to others who are going through seasons of difficulty. It may just be that God is also preparing your future character. He's shaping you. Hebrews 12 highlights the discipline of God. We'll consider that text in a moment, a little more detail. But it says, God disciplines us that we may share his holiness. After being disciplined and being trained by God, he says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. One of the things God is doing is preparing our our character ultimately that we may enjoy our future glory with him. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 says, don't lose heart Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. You see, God is working with a long-term goal in mind. Jesus describes his work with his bride in Ephesians 5 and his goal to present her before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach in the future day. God is doing that. He's looking ahead. We get so focused on the here and now, but God is preparing us for the future. He's preparing us through seasons of difficulty. And we can have the confidence that God is using our seasons of difficulty to prepare us because of a second truth Moses reminds us of, which is that God is sovereign over seasons of difficulty. He says God is reminding you of these things preparing you to go in and possess the land. And verse 2, he says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Now, if you were to ask somebody in this generation, why were you in the wilderness for 40 years, you would probably get a variety of answers. If you asked somebody who had been maybe 13 when their parents had failed to go into the promised land, that person might say something like, we got to be in the wilderness for 40 years because my dad didn't trust the Lord enough to take the promised land, right? I mean, they would be like, this was their fault. That generation had the chance to go in, and yet they didn't. They might think, you know, we were just in the wilderness, kind of wandering, killing time till we could go into the promised land. But the reality is they were there because God led them and God was faithful to them in the midst of that. God led them while they were in the wilderness. God led them to be in the wilderness. They were there because of God's sovereign plan, but they were also there because of the sin of others. This is not in... in While these truths are in tension in our mind, they, they fit together biblically. You know, Joseph and Job are probably the classic examples of God's sovereignty over seasons of difficulty. As Joseph reflected on years of hardship in his life directly caused on a human level by the sin of his brothers, he said this, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many alive in Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph understood God had a plan, he was sovereign, and his brothers were sinful and wicked, And God could accomplish his plan, not affirming their sinfulness, not being the cause of their sinfulness, but using it to accomplish his purpose. Job, after losing so much, even at at the prodding of Satan, could still say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He understood God was sovereign even over those difficult seasons that he faced. Moses is reminding the people of Israel that they had not just been wandering in the wilderness. They had been led by God intentionally through that season to accomplish the purposes that God intended. Even when our circumstances that are difficult are caused by the sin of others... We can know that while God hates sin and is never the author of sin and grieves over the suffering and difficulties that come as a result of sin, he is nonetheless sovereign over even those situations in our life. See, God in his sovereignty was leading his people in the wilderness not simply to prepare them generally for the future but to have a specific goals and lessons in mind for them which is the third truth we see that God is working through seasons of difficulty. One commentator put it this way. He said the most obvious evaluation of the wilderness period could be that it was a monumental waste of a golden opportunity because the generation that came out of Egypt failed to go up and take the land at that time. However, in retrospect, one can see that the ensuing years were not all wasted. As Moses looks back on that time, he discerns a purpose in having a generation wander about in the wilderness. God turned it into a learning experience that must never be forgotten. You see, God was working. Verse 2 says, you shall remember all the way the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might. God had a plan. God was it teaching the people in very specific ways through the difficult circumstances. In fact, if you look down at verse five, it says this. It says, "Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son." What was God doing in the wilderness? Well, it was like a father training his son, training him through the things that he faces through the discipline that he brought in his life in order to prepare him for a future, in order to shape his character and to equip him. God was disciplining as a father would his son. Now now before we consider what specifically God was doing and teaching and training in those 40 years in the wilderness, I, I want us to step back and think for just a moment about this idea of God disciplining us. It's a, a term that we're familiar with. The fact that discipline is, is, is a common idea for us. Oftentimes it's a, a word the Bible will use for, uh, for training, for rebuking, for warning. Sometimes it's translated as punish or chastise. And, and when the Bible speaks of discipline, there's a couple different kinds of discipline that the Bible speaks of. There is what we might call corrective discipline... When we see words like discipline, chastise, chasten, reprove, correct, this is discipline in response to something that is sinful. There's a sense in which, as we've seen, this discipline of God, of the people in the wilderness, is corrective discipline, right? They chose to sin, and God responded with discipline in response to sin to train them in that way. But discipline is not always that. There's also formative discipline, using words like discipline or train or instruct. This is more preemptive training, preparing for something that you need to learn. Often these are woven together, at least somewhat. My, my daughters all enjoy basketball, all, uh, all five of them uh, enjoy playing. We're blessed that they all play the same sport, so that simplifies our life significantly and we're grateful for that. But if you come to one of their basketball practices, you might see them running sprints up and down the court. One of two things is possible. It may be that they are running sprints simply because in basketball you run. And they need to be prepared for games in which they're going to run. And so as a coach, we say, good news, you get to run in practice so you're ready to run in the games. But you may see them running at practice because they were being all squirrely and they weren't focused. And they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And so the joy of of not doing that is now you get to run. Now, it's still helping them. It's still preparing them for what is going to come in a game. But one is more corrective and one is more formative. And those things often, again, overlap where our corrective discipline is intended to form and shape them. You know, those of you who are parents understand this. You might, you might have your child clean the bathroom. And you might have them clean the bathroom even though they are a delight to you and they have been obedient in every sense. And at the end of that afternoon, you still may say, go clean the bathroom. They're not in trouble. You just want to help them learn how to work hard, how to serve others, how to do gross things, how to care for one's home because you love them. And you know that one day they will need to clean their own bathroom and serve their family in that way. But it might be a consequence. It might be that they have had a difficult day and been disobedient. And so when dad gets home from work, he hears how the attitude has been towards mom and he says, all right, go clean the bathroom. And they still learn all those other things, how to work hard, how to serve others, how to do gross things, but they also learn that sin has consequences. And it is wise for us to submit to and obey the Lord. So we shouldn't think... That every difficulty we face, every discipline of the Lord, is the result of God disciplining us for some specific sin. That was the mistake of of Job's counselors. You remember his, his friends who were talking to him when they saw him suffer... And they said things like this, Eliphaz in Job 4, 7 said, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. He looked at Job and said, Job, you're suffering, you must be sinning. Now it's generally true that yes, we are sinners and sinners suffer, But it's not true that you always suffer in response to specific sin. That was what Job's counselors said. They said, Job, just repent of whatever it is you're holding on to, and your suffering will go away. That's not true. Specific difficulties in our life are the result of sin generally, but not necessarily the result of specific sin. But they are part of God's work in our lives, part of God's discipline and training of us. And you know that God disciplining Israel in the wilderness was not the exception in God's dealings with his people. It's the rule. Turn to Hebrews 12 briefly to see this principle clearly laid out. Hebrews chapter 12 describes the discipline of the Lord for his children. and Beginning in in verse 5, It says this, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says God disciplines everyone whom he loves, everyone who is his child, In fact, it's a demonstration of the fact that you are a part of God's family and of his love for you. If you are legitimately God's child, what does it mean to be that? John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If that's true of you, you are his child and he will discipline you. Why? Why? Because he's mad at you? No, because he loves you and he wants to, to see you bear the fruit that comes through those things. What is that fruit? Well, verse 9 continues. It says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. That's a pretty apt description as parents, isn't it? We do our best. But God, it says, um, it says he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why does God discipline us? Because he cares about us. He loves us. And he wants to see us share in his character. He wants to see us having true righteousness. That's what God was doing with his people, Israel, in the wilderness. He was a loving father seeking to discipline his children to prepare them for what lie ahead, to help their character be shaped. What did that look like, and what does that look like for us? What is God doing often through the difficulties we face as he lovingly disciplines us? Well, back in Deuteronomy 8, he tells them and he tells us, he says, I was doing this that he might first humble you. What is God doing through difficult seasons? Often, he is removing our pride. We'll see more of this later in the chapter, but it's clear in Scripture that God hates pride. He hates when we elevate ourselves because it takes the glory that is only due him. And so God actively humbles us. You see that in many examples in Scripture, someone like Nebuchadnezzar who exalted himself and God brought him low. Hezekiah, another example. And and God even humbles those who seem pretty humble already, like Job. He was humble and righteous and God brought him through a season of difficulty and made him even more humble and righteous. As one author has put it, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. In the midst of of difficulty. God is removing our pride. He is humbling us, reminding us that life is not all about us and what we want. It's all about him. Secondly, we see God is revealing our hearts. He says he's done this that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God says, I I brought you through this season to reveal your heart. Now, did God know what was in their hearts already? Was God ignorant? Was he waiting around like, "Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen? No, God knows. He's omniscient. He knows all. This word, to know what's in your heart, can mean to be revealed or to be made known. That's really the goal of testing, isn't it? It's to make something known that Already is, is one way or the other. You know, when my, my daughter, who uh, has her permit right now, is preparing for her driving test. The point of that driving test is to make known whether she can drive or not. When, a, when you test the chemicals in a swimming pool, you're finding out what is there. It's revealing that. It's making it known. In seasons of difficulty, God is revealing our hearts. It is becoming clear whether we will humbly obey Him or whether we will not. Proverbs 17:3 says, "The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. He, he reveals them. He makes them known." That was what God was doing. Deuteronomy 13 verse three spells out what God was looking for. When it says this, it says, The Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God brought them through trials to show what was in their hearts. To show them what was in their hearts. To manifest that to others. Oftentimes, difficult circumstances are the best catalyst for showing the truth of our hearts. I use the example often with folks of of a sponge. If you want to know what's in a sponge, what do you do to that sponge? Well, you squeeze it and stuff comes out. And it may be dirty, nasty water. It may be clean water. It may be any number of other things. How do you show what's in a person's heart, whether they trust and will obey God or not? Well, you squeeze them. And what comes out? It may be things that we are excited about it may be things that we say yes I see God's work in my heart and it may be things that we go I don't love that that's in my heart but it gives us the opportunity to respond in humility and to repent when we see sin it gives us the opportunity to glorify God when we see the faith and trust that God has built in us but how do we usually respond when we see something coming out in our hearts that we aren't excited about We usually say, like, stop squeezing me. I don't want that to come out. Instead of saying, I need to deal with what's in my heart. See, at times we may need to repent of what comes out of our heart in the midst of the trial when it's so tempting to respond by just blaming our circumstances and trying to change those. We excuse our sin if only life wasn't so hard. God says, No, difficult circumstances are not the cause of your sinful heart. They simply reveal it. They show what is there. And if we want to be Christ-like, we'll be thankful for that. It doesn't mean we we love it in the sense of like, yay. But it does mean we say, Lord, thank you for helping me to grow, to be more Christ-like by helping to reveal what's in my heart and by giving me the opportunity to grow in these areas. He is revealing our hearts. Third, he is cultivating our dependence. He says in verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This is a, a fascinating verse, isn't it? It says he humbled you and he let you be hungry. That almost sounds mean, doesn't it? He, he, let them, he let them be hungry. He let them experience some, some stomach pangs. But he, but he then fed them with manna in an amazing, miraculous way. You can go back and read Exodus 16, 1-5, or portions of Numbers 11 that talk more about the manna that God miraculously gave them. But that time in the wilderness involved withholding from his people and providing for his people. He let them know what it was like to not have some things that they wanted, and he provided what they truly needed. And he did so, why? What was his goal? The second half of that verse, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. You want him to know that's not the most important thing for you. Food, those desires you have, the tangible things you want, is not the most important thing for you. What is important is to live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You need God's word, God's revelation more than you need the kind of meal that you desire. It's interesting, this is the verse that Jesus quoted when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan to turn the the stones into bread and he said, man doesn't live by bread alone, I don't have to have that. I need to live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What's the point that Paul or that Moses is making here. He's, he's helping them to know that food is not as important as knowing and obeying the Word of God. Physical sustenance need not be our consuming priority. We're free to trust and obey God because God is ultimately the one who provides. And sometimes He also withholds what we think we need, but we can trust Him that He's going to give us what is truly good for us. And God demonstrated that. Faithful provision, not not only through the daily manna, but also verse four says that their clothing did not wear out, nor did your foot swell these forty years. God miraculously provided for them so that they were not in want. They had all that they needed, even though they were in the wilderness. You know, God often takes us through difficult times so we learn to depend on Him and not ourselves. So we learn to rightly prioritize what truly matters. That which proceeds from his mouth. And a fourth thing God is often doing in our difficulty is he is motivating our obedience. Verse 6 says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. He says, You've lived through the wilderness. Now be really careful to obey and respect me. Partially because you don't want to go back to the wilderness partially because you've learned that God is a good and gracious God who provides and cares for your needs, that He is wise and trustworthy, and therefore we should obey Him. We're to obey God's Word, to walk in His ways, to pattern our lives after His wise design, because we fear Him, not not fearful that He's going to send us to the wilderness, but an awe and respect of God that flows from understanding His greatness and His holiness and His goodness. You know, I don't know what seasons of difficulty each of you have faced or will come, but may we learn these lessons in such times that God is preparing us for that. Don't get so consumed with what's going on right now. Trust that God is sovereign over that season and He's working. He's working to humble you, to to grow your character as He reveals your hearts, to help you be dependent on Him and motivated to obey. But Moses doesn't simply dwell on the past. He doesn't simply say, remember what you have learned. He also helps them to be prepared for the future that will look very different. And so Moses instructed them regarding that future, giving them some lessons for seasons of prosperity. We'll consider them together briefly. The first is that we are to praise God in seasons of prosperity. Look at verses 7 through 10. It says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity in which you will lack, not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. He says you're about to enter into something that is very different than what you have known. He says some of you have only lived in the wilderness and what is coming is vastly different and vastly better than that. In that season of prosperity, he knows the temptation is going to be to focus exclusively on the good gifts that God gives. To just be really excited about the figs and the pomegranates and the honey and the water flowing and all those things. And to miss the, the praise of the giver of those good gifts. Beloved, we must never forget the giver of those good gifts. When you are in a season of prosperity, when you look around and you say, ah, oh, there are so many blessings that I do not deserve, and maybe you appreciate those things more because of past seasons in life where you haven't had those things. Do not just be focused on those gifts. Remember to praise God, to bless the Lord for the good land which he has given you. Now, ultimately, we will experience the most blissful and blessed reality in eternity. We may not get another season of prosperity in this life, You may not face that blessing in this life, but it will one day come, and certainly in God's presence, we will spend it exalting and praising Him. Praise God in seasons of prosperity. And a second lesson Moses gives is to remember God in seasons of prosperity. Notice the warning he gives in verse 11. He says, beware That you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. You see, the the first danger that they were going to face when they entered that promised land was that they would just be so consumed with all the good gifts that they would not praise God for them. The second was that they would forget the Lord their God. And notice he says that you would forget him by not keeping his commandments and ordinances. You see, remembering God is not just about having some mental assent to him. It's not just about having some plaque on the wall that reminds us not to forget. It's about a, a focus on God that changes how we live in obedience. If you are not keeping his commandments and Ordinances and statutes, you have forgotten him. You're not living in light of who he is. Moses says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord in your seasons of prosperity. This is intended first to keep us from arrogance. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, Otherwise, if you forget the Lord, When you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You see, in seasons of prosperity, it's easy to think that we had something to do with it, isn't it? It's easy to to forget that God has been the one to do this. It's easy to forget the manner in which He worked to bring us to where we are. To focus on what we have done and to forget that it is the Lord your God, it is He who gives you the power to make well. Think about Israel. They were entering a land that was full of natural resources. They'd had all kinds of things that were going to be a blessing to them to allow them to prosper as a nation and, and as individuals. God gave Israel the gifts and the energy to make use of those resources, and he has done exactly the same for us. What do we have that we have not been given? Absolutely Nothing. And yet the temptation is when we see something going well in our life, whether that's financial, whether that's a church plant that is thriving, whether that's in our families, whether that's in our job, to think that, ah, look at us, look at me, look what we have done. You see, remembering God and remembering where God has brought us as sinners saved by grace and through the seasons and trials we have faced keeps us from arrogance. It keeps us from saying, look at us, and it helps us to say, look at him. Look at what he has done. God has been faithful to us. We are, are just humble servants of his. Do not think my power and, my, and the strength of my hand has done this. This is the Lord. We need to remember God in seasons of prosperity because it it keeps us from arrogance. And secondly, it keeps us from idolatry. Notice verse 19. He says, It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations the Lord made to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. What does he connect here? He says, if you forget about the Lord, if you forget the Lord your God and do what? Go after other gods. You see, when we forget God, when we fail to worship Him, we do not cease to worship. You understand this, that we are worshipers God has made us to worship, and if we forget God and we cease to worship Him and give Him the praise and glory that He is due, we do not cease to worship. We simply worship something or someone else. Maybe in seasons of prosperity, we're tempted to focus on the good gifts that God has given and to worship those, to want more more the financial success that God has given. And so that becomes our consuming focus and idolatry. Maybe it's the possessions or the pleasure that comes with that, the security that we enjoy. God says, do not forget the Lord and become an idolater. Because if you do, God does not take that kindly. God is going to punish you. He will not allow you to take the glory that is due him and give it to another. So in seasons of prosperity, praise God, rejoice in him more than you rejoice in the good gifts that he has given and and remember God, do not think it's because of me and do not start to worship those things that God has given or to worship yourself thinking that you are the source of those things. God gives us lessons from seasons of difficulty and lessons for seasons of prosperity and in this text. Lastly, I just want us to briefly consider some lessons in the season of parenting. You know, this is not primarily a chapter about parenting. It's primarily a chapter about God as Father and how He leads and disciplines His children. But it is a a picture for us Those of us who are parents, it helps us to think about what God intends for us to do and to be as parents. As verse 5 said, he said, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. When we think of God's command to us as parents to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, God gives us a snapshot of kind of what that looks like. It's a picture for us that can help flesh that out in our minds. And so I just want to encourage each of us as parents first, don't neglect the discipline of your children. God was faithful with his children to discipline them, to correct them when they sinned, to respond with discipline, but also just to train them, to prepare them intentionally for what would come in the future Proverbs 22, 15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him and rescue his soul from Sheol. He says, discipline is a rescue mission. It's going after the foolishness in someone's heart to seek to help them respond to God as he deserves You know, it's common to hear parents say something like, oh, I just love my kids too much to discipline them. Biblically, that isn't true. Biblically, you may love yourself too much to want to discipline your kids because it's not easy and it's not fun, but you do not love your kids too much to discipline them because God says, every child I love, I do what? I discipline them. So parents, be faithful to discipline your kids in love, not in anger, Not punishing them for how they've messed up your life. Discipline and train them because you care about them and you long to see their character shaped. And children, accept the discipline your parents give you. Recognize that's a good thing. That's a blessing. Humble yourselves. Be eager to receive that correction. A second lesson for us from God's example in this text is to don't protect your children from everything hard. You know, God, who is the most loving Father of all, doesn't do that for us. But we can be tempted to do that as parents. And again, I think especially in our culture today, there's that mindset that we need to do everything we can to have as good of circumstances and as much comfort as we can. Now, I'm not saying intentionally put your children in as miserable situations as possible as frequently as you can. That's not the goal. That's going to happen plenty just because of life, but don't think your primary goal is to get your kids out of every hard situation they face. Your primary goal is to help them learn and grow through that. Again, there are times when it's right for us as parents to help change their circumstances, but don't view that as your primary goal. Help your children respond in seasons of difficulty as we've seen in this text. Humbling themselves before the Lord, trusting Him, cultivating their dependence on Him, recognizing what's coming out in their heart may not be great, and and helping them to see that. And then thirdly, don't lose sight of God's long-term goal for your kids. We need a long-term perspective as parents, not simply trying to survive the day or keep our kids from killing each other, although those are noble ambitions, and we should be seeking to do that. But that long-term perspective That's about more than just future education or employment. It's about more than just getting a a good job or finding a good spouse. It's about having a heart that loves the Lord, about having character that has been shaped by Him to be like Him, about being humble, trusting the Lord, obeying and treasuring His Word, about being ready to be with Him in glory. Now, parents, can you do that for your kids? Can you guarantee that? You cannot. But you can strive to be faithful, And you can strive to have that perspective be what shapes your interaction with your kid. Yes, it's helpful if they pass math and can get into a school where they can eventually get a job and not live in your house and strive for that. But that's because that is honoring to the Lord as they trust Him and work hard according to His Word and recognize that your primary goal is not preparing them simply for adulthood. Your primary goal is to prepare them to be in God's presence for eternity. God was working in the lives of his children. He did so through seasons of difficulty. He used those seasons to prepare them for a future by humbling them, by revealing and testing their hearts, by, by cultivating their dependence on him by motivating their obedience so that they could thrive in seasons of prosperity as well. That they wouldn't forget the Lord, that they wouldn't turn all the focus on themselves or the good gifts God has given, but that they would be quick to praise Him and humble before Him, being a worshiper of God. May that be true of us. May we learn these lessons and embrace the seasons God brings in our lives, trusting Him and and praising Him as faithful children of our loving Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a loving Father to us and you have adopted us as your children at great cost to yourself. Lord, you sent your Son to take the punishment our sins deserve so that we can be your child and, and you continue to care for us and And you do so in giving us good gifts and and providing what we need. And you do so by allowing circumstances in our life to test and humble us. And Lord, I pray that whatever season each individual here today is in, whether that's a season of difficulty or a season of prosperity, that they would learn the lessons you intend and that they would honor you in that season. And Lord, I pray for this church. Lord, this church is in a, a sweet season of prosperity. Uh, uh, an exciting time of of growth and joy and blessings from you. And I pray that in the midst of that, they would not forget you, that they would not become proud in their own hearts, but that they would continue to exalt you and to, to remember the work that you have done individually and corporately together. We thank you for that, and we pray these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.